Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Soho Art Materials. In 1999, they opened their first shop on Grand Street with a handful of sketchbooks, brushes, paint, and their Trimar stretcher bars. From that point, they've been an integral part of the artistic fabric of New York City. Soho takes pride in what they do as the last independent art supply shop in New York City, and they continue to keep their product assortments and standards high. In 2015, they designed and engineered an aluminum stretcher bar system with the same tongue and groove assembly as a standard wood stretcher. These patented aluminum bars can't warp or twist and are 100% keyable in the corners and cross braces. I've been using them for a while now and these things always lay flat against the wall. They're super sturdy. And you can find out more about them at SohoArtMaterials.com. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company that makes the best artist materials for making that you can get. Over the last 25 years or so, I've been using Golden acrylics, mediums, and materials, and I stand by the quality in their products. They make acrylics that stay wet longer, they dry flat, mediums to make you paint super thick and beautifully fluid. They also make Williamsburg oil paints and core watercolors as well. You can find Golden in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the fine coffee makers at Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has amazing coffee beans that you can order straight to your door. On their website, you can choose from different roasts from different origins, and you can even get a coffee subscription where you can get different beans delivered to your door each week or month. I'm on this subscription plan and it's amazing. As a coffee fanatic, getting new roasts all the time delivered fresh to the door is amazing. If you get to Seattle, you can even see a 10 foot by 40 foot mural of mine in their 6th and Bell Street shop. Check out Fulcrum Coffee Roasters at fulcrumcoffee.com. Corey Lynn Tetz was born in Calgary, Alberta, and lives and works in Montreal. She studied at Red Deer College, Emily Carr, and graduated from the MFA program at Concordia University. Coria has received project support from the Council of Art and Letters of Quebec, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Elizabeth Greenshields Foundation, and in 2016 was awarded the Brucebo Residency Fellowship. Her work was featured in the Magenta Foundation's Carte Blanche, a survey of Canadian painting, and in 2012 she was a finalist in the RBC Painting Competition. Corey's paintings have been exhibited across Canada, Sweden, and the United States, and most recently her work was featured in a large-scale solo exhibition at Contemporary Calgary in Calgary, Alberta. I spoke to Corey about painting in the family, painting the figure, humor in sexuality, and much more. Here's our conversation. You don't give a shit after you're like, oh, whatever. Put my foot in my mouth again. It's what am true. I, gonna do? I think grad school really did that for artist talks. We had to talk so much in classes yeah. and so many presentations that, and I was terrified. I had like 
like public speaking phobia and then that just kicked it out of me that was that was it and now I'm like I get nervous but when I'm doing it I'm like oh I'm uh, pretty good at this I can do this I could talk yeah like the arc of public speaking yes yes we had a class in college it was mandatory it was yes. like speech calm and you had to speak in front of god it was the worst thing in the world you know I was so just like an idiot like I didn't know bumbling and it's terrifying. No we have a video. We have a video of my dad who who passed away pr- very young. Uh, but uh-huh. we have a video of him. He had to start. He kind of moved up in his company, and he had to start leading meetings and things. And he was terrified of public speaking. And so <laughs> he went and did Toastmasters. And so we have a video of him. And he went through this little phase where he started to wear this tiny little ponytail in the back. This is on the prairies oh, in Alberta. And he started to wear this little yeah. ponytail, and he wanted a gold chain. So he had this nice. ponytail gold chain, and then he gives this speech and his mouth it's like there's this thing in Alberta when men talk where they're nervous or they're quiet and they don't move their lips and it's like this oh you know I'm just oh, uh, that's awkward. Da, da, da. like it's a kind of <laughs> midwest there's it's like an accent but so he has this tight face and he's giving this speech of, that he wrote about how my little brother wasn't into hockey and how he had to be okay with that. <laughs> so, so it was this really beautiful, touching thing that we have of my dad, but he's so nervous. It's so That's cute. Great. It's like so painful to, and cute to watch. That's so Canadian. Oh my God, Yay, yeah. he wasn't into hockey, eh, but oh I just God. had to move on from it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Like, He'd just skate around and go, hi, mom, like, wave. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, buddy. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so speaking, I, I think, you know, you get over it. Like, as you age, you just, I don't know, at some point, I went from never wanting to speak in front of people to now, if I see a microphone, I get excited. <laughs> I love talking in the microphone now. And I hated it. As in a band, as a it's kid, kind of a addictive. Singer. It's kind of addictive. I think m- my brother is similar. He he now has more opportunities to do it, and I can tell when so- when someone else is on stage, he wants to be. <laughs> he's yeah, like, yeah. I got to get on there. Yeah, yeah, I love the microphone. Does it carry? Does it carry over to like karaoke singing, or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah. It. Good. High school band. I was the singer, and I was so awkward, and my singing was like. Always very low in the mix. Yeah, <laughs> and I was not like strategically my stage low. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it was, you know, it was purposefully like part, like shoegazer music. So right. It's got kind of of like course. A texture. Of course. But like my stage presence was that I was a human being with a pulse. That was my stage. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no desire. But now, like, yeah, I could. Say, I'd love to. Oh, that's funny. Oh, bands. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and what were you, did you play I, music? Were briefly, um, yeah, so I moved to Montreal and all of my friends were in music and so I, you know, would go to their shows and started singing backup for some friends and did album covers and then I was actually in my friend's band and went on tour and was singing backup and was terrified um, but got, you know, got into it and kind of loved it but there was the very first show was like sold out in Toronto and then we had to do this kind of infamous radio show the next morning and really early 
um, with this very now controversial figure who is, was me too uh, But we went at like six or seven in the morning. We had to be there. No one told us it was a video recording. And so I was basically in my pajamas and like no makeup and no... So we Rock had to sing. And it was my only time singing. And the video is so... I just want it to die and go away. The video that someone commented <laughs> said, the backup singer looks like she's demon-possessed. <laughs> <laughs> because I was so terrified and just staring into space and just like not moving my face and not oh into gosh. it. And so... <laughs> You must have been so, yes. mortified. <laughs> yes. Touring was fun. Singing on stage was fun. I miss it. But, you know, it's not my thing. It's not my... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a certain thing. It's, yeah. other, it's a lot of my friends' things. It's not mine. Yeah. yeah. But, um, that's the deep end of the pool, though. Sold-out show. Sold-out show. We played... Yeah, we played a sold-out show in the Bowery in New York on that tour. Like, it was... Oh there's some huge shows and then some shows like Nashville where there's like five people. So oh, it was wow. a real so get, up and down. Spectrum. The whole spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Nashville's a great place for music, mm-hmm. isn't it? I love it. Yeah. It's yeah. fun. So, well, let's go way back. Um, yeah. Born and raised in Canada. Yes. Correct? Yeah. How, how did you, how did your parents end up in Canada? Were they lifers or did they? They're lifers. They're lifers. Um, they both, I guess, were born... My mom was born in Calgary. My dad was born in a little town outside of Calgary. And my mom's family moved to this little town called Bicycle. And they met... My mom <laughs> couldn't stand my dad. Um, he, I think he was a real partier. <laughs> he was a bad boy. He was, he was very funny and was a partier. So... I think she was like, oh, he's bad news. <laughs> but he was, my, she has this memory of uh, my dad coming into the cafe that her parents ran and saying, I'm going to marry her, I'm going to marry this girl or whatever. Anyways, they fell in love later. Um, and yeah, so I was born in Calgary, grew up outside of Calgary, and then Red Deer for kind of the later part of my teen years until I moved to Vancouver. So definitely, you know, central Alberta prairies, working class, very, very Christian. Yeah. And, uh, flames fans. It, this was a big, yeah, this was a big thing. If you're in red deer, you're either were flames fans or Oilers fans. And our family was on the flame side. My grandma, Patsy, who actually just passed away, a year ago or two years ago was a die-hard Flames fan. She hated Wayne Gretzky. Oh, wow. It's a very, very, (laughs) very very big thing. Yeah. Yeah. The Flames, I always love their logo and look. Yeah, I do too. I do too now. I didn't at the time as a kid. I thought, oh, this is, this looks lame. Um, But now as an adult, I kind of like it. I have, I have one of my dad's old Flames hats. Oh, that's Um, cool. Yeah, and I remember go, being a kid and going with him to see uh, his his favorite team was actually the Montreal Canadiens. That was oh, what nice. he, he was a fan of as a kid, and I remember going to a playoff game with him, and it was the Flames and the Canadiens. Hockey is so for those who don't didn't grow up in the city with it or don't really get into it or whatever. All you have to do is see it live. 
It is so exhilarating. I mean, when you go watch other sports like baseball and you're like, are you kidding? Like compared to hockey, it's like you can't leave your seat. I grew up in Pittsburgh. So in the era of Mario Lemieux and Yarmou oh, yes. Lager, so hockey was, you know, huge yeah. to us. Yeah. And uh, it's exciting. It was just a fun thing to watch. It was so fun. I would go watch my dad's games. He played um, old timers hockey, so it was always, you know, he was and he was only in his forties, but it was called old timers hockey. And the only times that they could get rink times would be at ten at night. So you right. know, as a little kid, I would go with him, and I would be on the bench with them, and I would open the gate for them, and mm-hmm. you know, get them beer in the change room. <laughs> You know, so I did all of that. I really, you know, like I was, I was very much a tomboy as a kid and very much like I wanted to do what the boys were doing and I wanted to be a part of that. The idea of playing ringette to me was really like never. I need to play hockey. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, side note, when you're 40, you don't want to be playing hockey with younger people. No, it's true. My friends <laughs> now, my friends now that still play, they play and they probably play at like weird rink times, but they just don't call it old timers. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the, I think they're the too, time they of day still, denotes. They do not believe see themselves as old timers. <laughs> so yeah. they've dropped they've dropped that. Yeah. Yeah, the next day is how you know whether you're an old timer <laughs> or not, no matter yeah. what the intensity. Um, yeah. so but growing up, how, where is the creative side of your life informed or where did it hatch? Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I just, uh, my mom just sent me a text the other day and it's a painting that my grandma did and she's, she just did it. She's 86 and uh, oh, wow. she was the first, those were the first paintings I saw. They were in everyone's houses and they she painted the same things over and over again and it was this kind of foothills landscape prairie to mountain mountains in the background um prairies rivers and then horses lots of horses she was obsessed with horses and cows and cowboys this kind of like prairie pastoral uh you know colonial landscape um but she just did it you know so i always remember Uh, yeah, so she always had she always had stacks of those Western art magazines. Do you, yeah. Did you ever see those? Um, yeah, they have like the bronze sculptures, and then they have paintings, and you know. So right, she always yeah. had stacks of those around, and then there was always a corner in her house um, where she had an easel set up and her paints. And I remember the smell of them, and just being like, "Oh, what is this?" Like very kind of seduced into playing with them. Um, And I also was, you know, a very cliche horse crazy girl. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, that was the first thing I started to draw. So I would look at her paintings and I kind of taught myself how to draw horses and would look at her Western art magazines and just, you know, but it was all about rendering for me. Like I really wanted to render these horses. Um, Yeah. So, and that was really on. Yeah. That was, I remember being 10 and just. Uh, using my Barbie horse Dallas <laughs> as my model. <laughs> yeah, right yes. on brand for these days. <laughs> I know, I know. I was really mad that Dallas wasn't in the movie. Actually, anyways, <laughs> I didn't see the movie, but I heard. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's yeah, it's it really on the is. list. It's like yeah, it really one of those things. Maybe I should go see Degas and Manet, and then swiftly and then, follow it up. 
chase it with a Barbie movie. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, just, things get busy. You got a great idea. Throw it all together, you know. Yeah. But yeah, so so you were. I mean, that's pretty cool that you had, you know, your grandmother she, too, sort of as that inspiration. She was. Yeah, she's a really interesting woman because she's um, she's very unconventional in her kind of you know her femininity the way she looks and dresses and um and she's very uh my grandparents ran a soup kitchen and so my grandma's whole life has been um caring for uh homeless people and um having an open space so there always were extra people in the house always lots of uh, foster kids and we were always at the kitchen with her so she had no time like she had seven seven kids I think Um, in a really big range and then there were always foster kids so um, and then she was always cooking she cooked at a summer camp at a like a Christian summer camp and then they opened the kitchen in Red Deer and they ran it so she was always doing that but she still always had you know, this space and would somehow find time to do this. And something about that, I don't know, stuck with me of just this, her finding her own space somehow in this life where she's like, she's doing very much doing the kind of the Christian thing that I was taught that your life is supposed to be all about giving and all about, you know, except for she had this one thing that she was like her thing um and she was really serious about it like she she quit painting for a while because she just couldn't get it right and it was really frustrating and her and I had a conversation a few years ago she was driving me to a residency at the BAMP center and we kind of took one of the side roads so we're driving through the landscape that she painted for years yeah. and we were talking about painting and frustration and she was saying I just get so frustrated and I was like grandma but that's all, that's a part of it. Like that is for me, the thing that keeps me going and keeps me interested is this, like this battle, this dilemma, this um, problem. And I think she had never really. I think she had been compelled to do this thing, thinking, kind of believing all of these cliches of it's supposed to be pleasant and it's supposed to be easy and it's supposed to be. Um, uh, like a hobby that is fulfilling and she had never had a conversation about the fact that it's really fucking hard <laughs> and that it's really frustrating and that that is part of it so it it was interesting because she had you know she had just totally quit because it it was too frustrating and now she's back doing it so my mom sent this painting and I said okay I want this painting like you have to save this a lot of them end up at my aunt's houses and stuff so my mom has taken this one and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it from my grandma. So I finally have my own. But I can see even that she's loosening up. Like the horses are becoming, like their faces are a little bit less um, rendered perfectly. And they're a little bit mm-hmm. looser and a little bit more charactery. It's kind of interesting. Do you think she's looking at your work too and just she's being inspired by what you do? I don't know. I mean, I think she does. I think her, I think... <laughs> Her and my aunts. It's interesting because a lot of my work, um, you know, in the last few years especially, has a lot to do with female sexuality. And um, and I grew up in a really, really Christian home. So I've had conversations about, like, the work that I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And um, 
And so it's interesting to have those conversations with them to see how they perceive it and what they perceive. And they all kind of get it like I, and, and are moved by the paintings, which is interesting to me. That's great. Yeah. To, so there's not that awkwardness of like, you know, yeah. religion slash, you know, sexuality suppress. There can be an urge to, well, that's nice. Yeah. And just look away. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Like I had a, I had a big show it at uh, Contemporary Calgary and it was like 35 paintings. We got paintings from collectors and, you know, over the last, I don't know, probably four years, paintings from four years. So it was this big show and a big event. And one of my aunts, who's, she's not that much older than me. She's, you know, kind of grew up. She was a teenager when I was a kid. Um, but she was crying. She had like tears. And she was saying, I don't know what it is about these figures, but they're just like, she was really moved by them and moved by the vulnerability of them, I think, um, which yeah. I think is something that paint does, you know, in the right. kind of transforming of these images. It's something that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of emotion put in just through the material of paint. And she was picking right. up on that. So that she, they can see why I'm doing it, you know, as opposed to just, yeah. That's a sophisticated art viewer. Yeah, and they're <laughs> not, they that, don't have, you know? you know, they know my grandma's paintings. They don't have art history knowledge. They don't have, um, you know, a kind of background in it. Um, the, yeah. sh- the show also that I did in New York at Arsenal, um, called Heaven Goes On Forever and Ever, kind of looking at modesty culture and looking at um, the connection with dress and um, propriety and modesty and God and terror. (laughs) Um, And they kind of, they also were really moved by that one and kind of understood what I was trying to do. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the, you know, I mean my sense of there you know understanding there's that relationship to sexuality and images but there's a real sort of tenderness to it and a quiet almost like introspection it's not sort of in your face or vulgar you know there's just there's something really and I think that the resonance with the way that you're painting it that sort of soft kind of like airiness to it as well kind of reverberates that gentleness of the work Mm -hmm. in a way and then things sort of sneak in through the door while you're you know sort of seducing with this beautiful way of laying down the paint and this quietness or this these intimate moments but then there's like this sort of subversive element that's just kind of like goes by when you're not paying attention maybe sneaks into the painting yes yeah that's exactly that's exactly what I'm what I'm wanting to do I love the idea of kind of seducing someone into looking at a painting that they wouldn't normally look at and be kind of surprised yeah. by it. Um, and, you know, for me, I think a lot of it is taking, you know, I was, I was really afraid to, to kind of, I was trepidatious to work with these images um, to begin with. It started with, um, I was going to do a residency at the BAM Center and I get this text from my brother and he said, Corey, I've just found two big bags of old porn behind a, like a, <laughs> a, a Salvation Army drop bin. 
He's like, do you want it? I'm like, not yes, not my closet. <laughs> no, uh, he, I he was with his street. friend, and <laughs> there were like two giant bags. So someone's uncle died, obviously, or grandpa died, and they were cleaning right. out his stuff and was like, oh, what do we do with all this porn? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so he likes to credit himself with uh, with uh, starting me off on this trajectory. Uh, yeah. So I was going to the BAM Center and I was kind of getting tired of what I had been painting and not really knowing what to do. And a friend of mine, who's also a painter, said, Corey, just paint exactly what you want. Don't think about it. Just go there and enjoy yourself and look for pleasure and paint exactly what you want. And so I get there with these magazines and I'm in this beautiful, huge studio tucked in the woods and I have these magazines just laying all over the floor. Just and porn the everywhere. Things, yeah, exactly. And the things that I've always loved to paint are all right there. Like painting fabric, painting skin, painting the figure, all of these things that art school had kind of tried to get out of me like get me away from like these are not these are not you know worthy subjects of interrogation these are not academic enough if you want to be taken seriously you know you should move into more abstraction move away from the figure especially the, fe- really? the female was... nude oh yeah 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 totally like there's a what lot years of are we talking about um in, in school my early early years were it was that was fine but grad school was grad school was 2012, 13, 14. And it was a lot of uh, the conversations were, it was all conversations about formalism. Like it was all conversations about material and form and very little conversations about content or the figure. You know, I was, I was in grad school with a lot of kind of dude, abstract painters um, who are very nice. Wait, is this... This was in, is this, this pre or post crabstraction? I can't remember if like uh, zombie form. This was, was around the. Earlier, right? This was around the time. Oh, okay. yeah. Maybe so, it crested at that point. Yeah, I think to where so. it trickled into schools. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So there was you a know? lot of abstract painters, and I just was not having. I was having amazing conversations with my thesis advisor, um, and you know a few instructors, and I was I was old enough that I was stubborn in what I was doing, and I knew you know the direction I wanted to go but um but it was a real like push like just feeling pushed and pushed and pushed um and really struggling and not knowing you know what to do with that so anyway so going to um being at the BAM center and having these I felt this it's like okay I'm gonna I'm I felt nervous about it because I could hear my I could hear my feminist female painting teachers uh, you know in the back of my shoulder saying what are you doing like why are you doing this this is you know um but I started making these paintings and I and I noticed that something was happening when I was making them that the that just the the entire meaning of the image shifted and that they no longer were about the male gaze at all it had yeah. the, it was like it was like the male gaze was completely taken out of the the equation and I started to have people into the studio I had my gallerists in Calgary come by and just hearing their response from uh from women generally and how much they were connecting to the paintings I find I found that really interesting um and I found that men men 
had to connect technically to the paintings. They would say, oh, you know, your brushwork is really strong and, you know, but they kind of weren't allowed the same entrance into the images, but, but women were often um, really kind of moved by them. Um, and that was it. Like, that just kind of set off a trajectory of me trying to push what I could get people to look at without and kind of addressing the issues of shame and um, class, you know, coming from like very working class, very Christian, you know, there's so much shame put on any kind of female sexuality um, that, yeah, that there's just so many, the images have brought up so many conversations, even between me and my mom um, and other women and queer friends. And, you know, so it's interesting. It, it, once, I, once I got the response that I knew I wasn't just perpetuating this, these kind of cliche ideas of beauty, you know, that was the thing I was afraid of. Um, but there's yeah. something that the paint, the way that I paint... Um, it's, you know, it's hard to see, it's hard to tell. I think that's a big thing for people when they see my work online is they see the digital version of it. And then when they get up in in front of it and see them in person, they can see that kind of uh, frailty or the kind of falling apart um, and the kind of, yeah, like things are just holding together. um, So it doesn't doesn't come across as as I don't know it has a little more humanity to it yeah no definitely I feel like um it's such an interesting and looking at the work and that was what you were saying there about the entry point for female friends that we're talking about as opposed to male and just thinking about this kind of work today is so different than pre-internet or you know because the idea of risque or sexuality or the way that that's played out it's so different now you know what I mean like these seem so much like not obscene yeah or or, you know where you know like here's a great example Olympia in the Manet painting I mean you know we know the story of that painting was just like crazy when that dropped like people were like you cannot you know it was so controversial and you know to think of like what you can see in two seconds on your phone for anyone at any age nowadays and how that recalibrates your idea of you know what is taboo or what is you know it's yeah there's it's just a different you're entering your work in like this iconography is entering into the stream of the visual language of sensuality or sexuality or you know our thoughts on those in a totally different area than ever before really yeah it's interesting like i almost feel like it's more um it's more uh not controversial but just this idea that if you're a feminist and you're making paintings about female experience that you have to be really hard hitting and in your face and abrasive and really challenging um and for me, I find it more interesting to show kind of more complicated versions of vulnerability. And, you know, I think a lot of women or people that identify as women relate to that more than um, it just be- it kind of became overdone, 
you know, not overdone. I mean, very necessary, very necessary, you know, readdressal of, of, you know, feminism and art making, but, um, but showing vulnerability, showing, um, yeah, I think for me is, is more interesting. One of the first collectors that bought the work in Calgary, um, I got to meet them at this contemporary Calgary show and they are an elderly lesbian couple who bought this painting and it's a large painting and it's a woman looking in a mirror and it's, you know, she has no, she's porky pig in it. So she has no pants on. It's her bare bum. (laughs) It's her bare bum. She's looking in the mirror and, um, and these women have this pa- this painting hanging in the very like prime spot in their house, and they came over to talk to me, and they just said, "We are so happy to have her in our house, where everyone can see her, and with no shame." And they said, "You know, we as lesbians living in Alberta, first of all, we're not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to be lesbians. We're not supposed to be out." And we were never allowed access to these images. Like, these are forbidden. And so that, to me, you know, was so, such a, like, a check mark. Like, okay, good. I'm on the yeah. right, I'm in the right direction. Right. And it's funny because, I mean, the, the same painting could be bought by someone, like a couple or a gay couple or, you yeah. know, it, it's... You know, and it can mean different things to different people yeah. in a way too, which is I think like even open ended and open ended. I think for anyone anyone who's kind of deals with feminine identity, you know, in any regards can relate to these paintings and these ideas of the things that we like the things about sexuality. There's a lot of kind of theatrics in the poses, um, which I find really funny. And that to me also is part of the work is this this the humor. Um, and the kind of ridiculousness of sexuality and posturing and the theatrics, um, but how we've all absorbed and rejected these cliches. No, you know, from my right. most punk rock friends, you know, we've all absorbed um, these ideas of like how to be sexy, how to be coy, how to be, you know. And we all do them, <laughs> and we've also re- and we've also rejected makeup? them. You know, we've also said yeah. no. You know, we're not. You know, and I rejected as a kid. I rejected femininity as a kid. I was like, you know, I lived in a culture that was completely fo- focused on boy culture, like sports and athletics, and you know, the boys got to go outside and help you know, mow the lawn and the girls had to stay inside and clean the bathrooms. And, you know, it was very gender divided and I did, I hated it. Like I, so I rejected everything that was feminine. Um, and then growing up and getting older and, you know, it's, it's fun now. I feel like these paintings are all almost like me playing dress up and me yeah. kind of engaging in this, like really indulging in this, like, Oh my God, there's nothing more amazing to me than painting like a giant dress like i wish i will wish we lived in a time where people were wearing more dresses because there's nothing more satisfying to me and now as an adult and as a painter it's where i kind of have the most fun and play around with the most we i had a big conversation i had a studio visit with um a 
friend, a couple. Um, she runs a gallery in LA and her husband came and we had a big conversation about how I paint genitals and how, and he was saying, <laughs> he was saying, he was saying like, it's just amazing. Like you, you know, your eye kind of moves around the painting and the paint, they're painted with such a kind of light touch and fast movement that you don't, you know, you kind of, your eyes kind of jump across them and it's almost like a void, but it's there. Like it's very present, but it's not present. And it's this yeah. in between, this in between kind of vacuous space. Um, but then you see like these really 80s tan lines and this, there's this one painting that I'm thinking of that is this woman and legs sprawled. There's a giant butterfly and then, you know, and she's got these 80s tan lines. So your eye moves around with these kind of, you know, what I try to make is like beautiful brush marks and soft color. And then you're getting these little things and you're like, oh, brush marks. Oh, that's a vagina. Or, you know, oh, those are yeah. tan lines. So you're getting these little surprises as your eye kind of dance or dances around. Um, but yeah, that was part of like his, you know, he was really like kind of looking at all of these these points in the painting as being what would be you know if you painted everything really hyper realistically be like very focused and very clear and it would kind of take over the painting and right. yet here you can have a painting with a giant bush and a big you know big tan lines and yeah. It works. I'm like, how can I get people to look at this? <laughs> right. And there's something too that the softness I mean, there is a relationship, like when I look at the imagery in your work, there does, it feels like, I mean, I lived through, you know, those decades of like, yes, that kind of image, even tan lines is funny because yes. I, I believe back in the day, tan lines were thought of as very sexy because A, someone had the time and leisure, almost like in the old Rubens paintings of like, you know, voluptuous, heftier figures were deemed as like, they had the ability to eat more so they came from an upper class whatever and that was desirable or whatever and the tan lines is like they have enough time to just sit out in the sun and yes. also it's highlighting an area that you're not really supposed to see or usually see so there's like that was the turn on to that whereas now it's like hd 12k you could see every pore in someone's skin so yes. that makes these look all the more sort of like I know it does something different to your um, your brain's ability to to understand what they're talking about. Certain areas just fall apart into the paint, and some things kind of like tighten up. So it kind yeah. of feels like um, I don't want to say foreign, but it feels like a different way of viewing nowadays because nowadays yes. everything is so crisp all the time. Everything you know? is so crisp, and I. I have this a lot right now where I'm, and with teaching, where I see a lot of paintings that everything is so perfectly planned out on an iPad before it's executed, and then, yeah. and then it's executed and everything is so well done and perfectly rendered, and there's no, the things that I really love in painting are, you know, when you go and you look at a Manet and you look at the bottom of a dress and it just falls apart, or you look yeah. at, you know, you go into the John Singer Sargent room in, at the Met and you just see the paint fall apart, and right. that for me is like, that's the exciting part, 
And so I, I was feeling, I was feeling a little bit like, oh God, my paintings aren't perfect enough. Like, you know, I was feeling the pressure of this kind of tightening up that seems to be happening everywhere. And I saw my painting, I saw my painting in the context, like in a show where everything was quite like tight and neatly rendered. And I saw my painting in contrast and I was like, oh no, like this is good. Like this is what I have to lean into um, because it's doing something different than these paintings, you know? Yeah. But the thing you're saying about the, the tan lines. Yeah, it is. It's hard to get, it's hard to explain that. The logic of sensation is a great, um, a great kind of reading. That's that what kind that's what kind of did it for me when I was, in school, reading that and thinking about the idea of sensation and, and paint as being able to kind of bypass um, the logical brain and go straight to the body. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think students these days, in the sense, it's hard to teach it in the sense that people want everything to be yes. super crisp and perfect, probably because of all this high definition everything or everything being so... Um, particular because you can pin winners when information can hit you from a million different angles everything has to be focused on something mm-hmm. where there's this desire to want to be as technical or as good or but the irony is is with AI and with all this other ability of of machines or stuff to to create something just like something else or whatever then we should be celebrating even more so the flaws or the bumps or the that's what makes something special i think sometimes people see my paintings and are like oh there's a little mark there or because they generally in reproduction look pretty flat or pretty even but in person there's all sorts of like hand stuff in there and i have to tell them like no yeah i left that drip there i left that line to be like that because that's the human element that lets you know that i made it and it wasn't assistants or robots or anything else or a printout or whatever you know it's such a it's a funny balance because I feel like I'm always trying to balance that like what can I leave uh, and what do I need to tighten up and I think that for me like within the first few layers of painting is kind of where the energy is created and there's a kind of moment or um uh interaction that happens and then the whole painting is me trying to maintain that and not to lose it and I think you know back in the day I would just paint and paint and paint and paint until it was dead uh, until everything you know just with this idea of perfecting it and it would totally lose that energy and so now um, so now it's more about how do I what can I get away with leaving you know, yeah. what can I get away with leaving because it holds energy? And if I try to perfect it, it's going to kill it. Um, right. I, had, I had a very interesting, I had a interesting moment at my opening at uh, Arsenal in New York where two of, my, two of my like big influential teachers were at the opening. Um, one of them lives in New York and one of them uh, had come to visit her. And they were teachers from Emily Carr. It was Lucy Hogg and Renee Van Helm. And they were um, both saying, and they were looking around the show and I was 
watching them look around and I was <laughs> like, oh my God, oh my God, they're, t- they're destroying this. They're, they hate it. They hate it. And then, <laughs> and then I went up and talked to them and I was like, so tell me what you guys think. <laughs> and they were like, it's good. They're like, it's really fresh. Like the painting is really fresh. And they said, because you used to really overwork things. And then Renee was like, yeah, you really overworked things. <laughs> so that was a huge compliment. That was a huge compliment. But it's still a battle. And especially now, you know, paintings going, you know, to other countries and selling for more money. I have this like, like this feeling of like, can I just leave this part like this? You know, but I have to, I have to. I have to trust that it's part of the energy of the work and that if I try and fix it, it's dead. Like it doesn't, it doesn't hold that anymore. Yeah. You just have to listen to your, you know, your in that inner critique of like, all right, you're going to destroy it. Like if you have that thought, like if I keep working on this, I'm going to kill it. Yeah. And I do that. And sometimes I have to do that. And I feel like for every painting I make that I put out into a show, there's a couple dead ones in the studio that, you know, had to to feel the the rest. I have so many. I have so many. Um, But it's like I need to go through that process and some things, you know, some things just need to be I need to see it to an end. and then usually, like, one of the paintings in the show in L.A. right now um, is the strongest painting in the show. And I did two versions of it because the first version I felt like was too heavy-handed and the colors were too intense. And so I did another version of it, and it really, it really softened up, and it was what I needed to do, you know? Yeah, I think just sometimes there's this idea that in school you, you work through stuff you know, you exercise the demons, release the kraken, get all that stuff out of there. And then you go on and you start showing and then, then it's like every painting is a hit or you got to nail every... But that idea that you still have to fail, you have to work through those mistakes and then you just, you just shelve that one and move on to another one and you have to still be okay with yeah, just the occasional mess up or failing and then that's what keeps you learning in the work. It's, de- it's, it's been a real, like the last two years have been a very big learning curve for me because um, the stakes have gotten higher, the shows have gotten bigger, you know, the prices have gotten bigger, and, but my relationship to the work is, you know, the same. And so I do have, like, I need to leave space for failing. I need to leave space for playing around, um... And if I don't do that, I'm in trouble. And this, the anxiety of like having a tight deadline and and wrecking a painting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I also totally. and just the emotional up and down of a show like I this show for LA. It's like I started, I came back from New York and I had this tight deadline and I just started painting right away and I just I wrecked like four paintings in a row and I just was like I can't believe this, you know. And you have this whole this whole emotional breakdown of like, I'm not a painter, I can't do this, you know? (laughs) And then you get one that you're like, okay, this one's working, this one's working. And it's like, you know, it's like that conversation with my grandma. It's like this idea of it as being an emotional kind of roller coaster sometimes, an up and down, like your paintings take you through this journey that is, you know, sometimes exhausting, probably more exhausting for the people around you. 
Um, <laughs> but it's not, it, yeah, <laughs> it's not this, like I def, and I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that I can't do things in big series. So if I make a painting, I can't make 10 more like it. Like every right. painting is a different thing. I'm starting from a different place and the images are asking different things of me. So um, I'm really like not a serial painter. So in a show, there'll be, you know, completely different images. Um, are you sketching them out? Like, are they just coming from I do, rough sketches? Do you go Like, how do you do it? I do like a few, I use images. Um, I'm starting to actually use images that I'm taking more. So previously it's been found photos. I usually do porn. some line, just some, yeah, <laughs> porn. Used to be just be porn. Found <laughs> or photos. Like Laura Ashley, <laughs> Laura Ashley ads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the show at art at Arsenal in New York was a lot of, um, Laura Ashley. Laura ads. Ashley. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do very minimal drawings just to kind of see how it is going to look you know, just for composition, composition and stuff. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm taking the figures out and putting them in a different background, which, you know, I used to do kind of digital collages, just very rough. Like, you know, my Photoshop skills are loose and, uh, not great. Um, but I try to just leave the painting for the painting. I'm trying to start to do more small color studies because color mm -hmm. is often the thing that really fucks me up if I'm just jumping into a painting and not working things out beforehand, um, which is often what I do. I just jump in and I put down a really intense color and then I respond to that color and it's just a kind of layer by layer. Now I'm starting to want to think about it a bit more in the beginning but I'm so ADD when it comes to like jumping into work that I'm like the idea of sitting down and entirely planning a palette out makes me want to not paint run <laughs> scratch my eyeballs out yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta um, go and so I don't do it your inclination yeah you just yes. gotta make your intuitive way work the yes. best way it can work otherwise you're gonna well, be miserable and hate the process. The problem is, the problem is, I have found that when I'm working out, sometimes when I'm working out the palette as I go, um, I'm my brush marks get a little uh, inhibited because I'm like, oh no, this isn't the right color. This isn't going to work. So, hence the painting, like painting that, making that piece twice. Um, really helped because I, the first one was to kind of figure out the color and then the second one I could just lean in like the best I did a series during the pandemic that was all in grayscale and it yeah, was yeah, the those are cool. porn images With, like yeah subtle hints and that of color, right yes and yeah. that was like like using warm grays and cool grays um, that was huge for me because that really like I didn't have to think about the color and I was just responding more to the temperature and to the light. And then my brush marks were, it was all about the brush marks. And I think that kind of set a trajectory for me for the rest of the work. And so I'm trying to find the balance between pre-planning and planning on the go and, and seeing where I can, you know, where I can kind of do a little bit more planning so that I'm not... You know, it, it's a bit devastating when you mess up a 50 by 60 linen yeah. <laughs> canvas. It's a lot of, you know? lot of work. A lot it's of a lot of work, a lot work. of money. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is true. You know what's funny? We were, I think, judging by your description, making 
grayscale work with a hint of color at the same exact time because I was oh, doing really? it. Yeah, I just went into a phase for a few months, but it was right before COVID. Okay. Doing these portraits and then landscapes that were all kind of grayscale with one hint of color. And I was doing it in my Pennsylvania studio, not my New York studio where I teach. Right. And then COVID happened and I wasn't there for like a year and a half, basically. Wow. And that work just, that body of work died. Like it just didn't. Wow. When you saw them, when you saw them, did you, did you have like a, oh, these are, you know, did you have, you know, when you see an old painting that you did that you kind of dismissed and forgot about it and then you see it and you're like, oh no, actually this is, this this is working. Yeah, no. I thought yeah. it was I th- I thought oh this was this was a cool idea like this was yeah. good to go through but yeah. then I was like but I've moved on like in my mind yeah. I'd already yeah. started work back in Brooklyn that was different. Yeah. Mine was very much survival mode. Like it was we were in full lockdown. Um I live alone. I don't live with my partner. Um my studio, my everything was shut down in Montreal. We had a curfew. Uh, my studio mates weren't going to the studio. Uh, they were older. One had a little kid. So my studio was empty. So I would walk to my studio from my apartment. There was no, Montreal is like notorious for construction sounds and, and traffic, like Mm -hmm. just construction and road work everywhere all the time. There was nothing. There were no cars on the street, no construction. I mean, same thing as everywhere, but this, we were in lockdown for a long time. So my doing this was like, I was freaking out, you know, all by myself, not knowing what to do, going to the studio. And I was like, I cannot deal with color right now. I was so yeah. frustrated with color and, you know, harmonizing color. And I was like, fuck it. I'm not, I hate it. I'm just going to make a bunch of underpaintings. And so the whole idea was like, my favorite, you know, my favorite thing in the mat is like, seeing the Tiepolo grayscale studies, you know, like they're so good. And so I bought some Gamblin, like chromatic black and some, um, some grays. And I was like, okay, I'm just doing these. And then, and then I think my partner came in and he was like, oh, these are like, you shouldn't keep going. Like you should leave these. And I had kind of started thinking that anyway. So I was like, I don't know if I want to go over top of these with color. Because they were very, were very reflective of kind of what was happening around me and what was um, the stillness in them and the yeah. solitude in them was amped right up. And it was like all of these women were, were you know, stuck in their apartments, curfew and... Um, you know, solitude became a lot more active, I think, <laughs> during that time. Yeah, it just so yeah, nice. it was huge. And it and it also was one of the most pleasant painting experiences I've had, had in years because there was no stress. It was yeah. like making these paintings, there was no there was no they weren't there was no feelings of uh fraughtness. Or expectations, pure, right? Pure pleasure or expectations, yeah. Yeah, nothing makes you in the studio feel like you're playing with house money. Like no one might ever see these paintings again, and we're all yeah. not have no idea what's going to happen. We might be in bubbles or whatever. <laughs> so I mean, you're like, yeah, and Fuck all it. Let's I had just to do, whatever. do, yeah, and I, you know what? Like COVID was such a horrible thing, and so many people died and went through horrible things. I don't have kids. 
you know, hearing my siblings' experience is such a different experience than mine. Mine was like a, a rest, you know? It was yeah. like all I had to do was go to my studio. The government was giving me money, <laughs> and all I had to do was go to my studio. And that was the first time in years that I hadn't had to, like, hustle and work um, admin jobs or find, you know, CJEP teaching jobs or... You know, I did some online teaching during that time, but I wasn't having to do office work. I wasn't having to hustle, hustle, hustle for rent yeah. all the time. Um, and as far as my, you know, career, it's when people started noticing my work was during COVID. And it was a huge, a huge jump for me um, as far as like get it, connecting with people. Um, I, you know, connected with uh, the painter Paulina Olauska mm -hmm. in Poland who invited me to go work with her. Um, so, you know, as things were easing up a bit, I went to Poland and stayed with her, worked with her. And, you know, it's how I got connected with Anat Ebge in LA. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting. Like I had that, I had that time where I could really like dig in and paint and paint and paint and that feeling, and it was the first time where I had that feeling of like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm okay right now. Like, I'm okay. Yeah. I can, I can pay my rent, and yeah. Yeah, it's a sliding scale, you know. COVID, or just in general, of like, for certain people, it was a little easier than others. Certain people, yeah. it was like horrifying or whatever. But that's like day to day. Anything really can be that sliding scale. But yeah, if you don't have kid, or like for those people who had a gigantic yard. I'm sure yeah. COVID was a lot easier. <laughs> yes. We, well, we had a friend of mine had just bought a house and they had a very, <laughs> they had a very kind of hidden backyard. And so with a bunch of Adirondack chairs. So there were about four of us that live kind of close by. So we would sneak, we'd dig out the snow, we'd sneak into their backyard and sit in the Adirondacks and put our, bo our bottles of white wine in the snow banks. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then we would just hang out in the backyard in the snow and then 10 minutes before curfew, we'd run home. <laughs> so that, and all of us were childless and it was, yeah, it was our, yeah. our coping. Uh, um, can we talk about, a I almost never do this. Can we talk about a specific painting? Sure. So the one with the woman with the, the, cab driver's hat and the the painting behind her and the butt, yes. the porky paint. I laughed earlier. Yeah. You might have saw me like <laughs> chuckling when it was yeah. not appropriate at all because I kind of side glanced because I have that image up on my other screen. Oh, yes. Yes. And then porky pig popped into my head. Yeah. <laughs> I will never... It wasn't Daffy Duck. It wasn't... Um, no. It wasn't uh, Yogi Bear's Porky Pig, which is like yeah. making me laugh in my head of that. It's the best term. It's the best term for someone who is pants and underwearless. Right. Like it's funny is the idea of like, yeah, Porky Pig just walked around Porky with Pig. his ass hanging yeah. out. Exactly. But it's funnier when it becomes a verb, like they, yeah. they were Porky Pigging it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> running around no pants on so yeah. that painting I was just curious as to you know if the genesis of that like it's so compelling the face behind the, mm -hmm. the woman who's mm -hmm. showing us the back um, yeah. in that the proximity of the faces and I think to, is it a moon in between 
Yeah, I, it, there was like it was a it was this um, it was actually a pullout like a poster inside one of the penthouse magazines, and it was this woman standing and posing in front of a painting, and I had kind of um, I had started to do that a little bit where um, I had a few paintings of women standing in front of paintings, and I actually put my grandma's painting in there instead of. Mm-hmm. The painting that was there with this one I stuck to the original image as far as the like convention of it but I, I think in the painting of it like kind of making her face shadowed and having this face emerging from the background um, the relationship in the painting versus in the picture you know the original source image I yeah. think there's much more of a relationship between those things in the painting um, than yeah so yeah it's a really compelling image because I was curious. Yeah. I mean, that's good to know the backstory. No pun intended. Um, I just thought, you know, it, that relationship of the pose in front of the other painting and then it looks like it could be the male gaze of a, a male mm-hmm. looking but not at that figure kind of looking out. It's seemingly mm-hmm. more so at the viewer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Las Minas, uh, the Velasquez yes. painting. I love that. Yeah, the, the, same. The, the sort of the gaze like there there are some people who've diagrammed every single possible gaze of that painting from mm-hmm. the collectors looking in the mirror or maybe it's the viewer looking in the mirror at the collectors next to that all that mm-hmm. stuff is so compelling and this mm-hmm. i was just curious if you were thinking about those kinds of paintings whether it be matisse mm-hmm. or you know velasquez or manet and there's just well, these- like a really beautiful connection to um, art history with a little bit of softcore mm-hmm. porn in there, I guess. There's a huge, I mean, there is a huge, a lot of the source images from from the kind of penthouse magazines and porn magazines are very influenced by art history. Like, apparently, Bob Guccione was a huge art history buff and loved painting. He these? did a lot of uh, the photos in the 70s, I think, okay. for penthouse. Um and so he's he was making those connections um you know that kind of got lost in this you know men looking at these images just for one purpose only um so i'm i feel like i'm kind of rediscovering those connections but this painting also got me thinking about that more and more and how i feel like this whole series of using those paintings has started to would put these little ideas in my head and have me now looking how looking for ways to create those images on my own with people that I know so this idea of a painting within a painting um and kind of using like using my grandma's painting or using um you know other work in people's houses those kinds of things I'm thinking about all the time now and especially that image I really loved this uh this backdrop and how this backdrop is a flat image, but it becomes a part of this space that the figure is in and how the kind of shadow of the face and the shadowed eyes of the figure set the figure back and bring forward that background. So now I think I've looked to try and do that in other pieces. And it's a, it is interesting because it is an idea that's always 
coming back to me, like how I, how I can do that again. And I don't think I've been successful at it yet, but I think about it all the time, like using paintings as backdrops, paintings within paintings and having the figures kind of emerge and fall back. Um, it's like a song within a song. It's like when a jazz song yeah. quotes another jazz song. It's so good because yeah. it adds this whole other layer. But in that yeah. painting, I don't know if it was intentional on your part, not to get too paint techy geeky mm-hmm. about this stuff, but the contrast in the woman's face and under the hat is nowhere near as um, strong as in the fabric and the foreground. And the palette of the shadow of the face and the skin of the face matches and almost lines up with the painting. In a sense, mm-hmm. it almost looks like the woman is dissolving into the painting mm-hmm. or is emerging out of it. I don't know if that was like intentional or not. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think um, for me, a really big interest has always been the kind of figure-ground relationship and having the figure kind of disappear into the ground, um, into the background, and the space kind of moving towards abstraction, um, but things holding together in little little details. Again, like the, like the Manet dress, the bottom of the dress falling apart. It's like... Um, doing that between the figure and ground. I did a big series after grad school that was like a lot of figures in landscape and they were kind of these pseudo-spiritual, they, they seemed like um, some, there was always a really intense light source and this landscape that was kind of falling apart mm-hmm. and the figures kind of falling apart in the landscape. So I think that is always something I'm trying to continue in my paintings even now like even as I look around in my studio at what I'm working on I always want some of the things to fall apart and be um, moving with the background so that the two things become related um, and become a part of each other so it's not like a figure standing in a space it's more an atmosphere created by the interaction between a figure and a space, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So for sure, for sure with that one, I wanted like those two things to kind of merge into each other. It works. But it's, it's always, yeah, it's always, and I don't know, I don't pre-plan it, but it's always something that I'm interested in making happen. And so when things become too solid, I often like feel like it's wrecked and I have right. to you know push it back yeah 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 it's just a, it's a really good painting especially faces like faces for me if a face is too tight and too detailed it just takes over the painting and so it's always a battle for me of how to make how to make a face that is just brush marks right. that has the essence of a face but that is not um, that does not take over. It's not like the boss of the, the painting. Yeah, it's not. So, and I think for that one, it was really, yeah, and for that one, it was really like, I did not want that face to take over. I wanted her to kind of be looking, um, but not kind of controlling the, the, the image. Right, which is funny because it is her butt that's like front and center yeah. painting but yeah. no one's looking at it. I, you wouldn't look at it it's funny the male gaze yeah. of like oh only one thing but you don't even really that's not even I think that's what's supposed to be the risque element or like hey look at this 
but then everything else about the painting or like subject matter wise is way more compelling than just you know the butt that's just hanging out it looks almost ridiculous because of the it's not but you know what i'm saying it's like that dynamic between the two things of like this is a painting and that's what's happening in the foreground but then there's all this beauty and it's this sort of like magical parts of the painting that are happening and the rest of the painting so it is kind of ridiculous i mean even the idea of like how um flashing someone or mooning someone is like you know can be a joke or can be telling someone to fuck off or can be you know um that it's kind of a funny thing it's a funny thing that that happens and that in this context it's supposed to be seen as sexual but it also comes out as funny you know yeah, there's low, low there's like often low stakes in showing your butt you know <laughs> right. <laughs> right. it's like would might be the first thing that i would show it would just be <laughs> flash a flash of butt <laughs> right <laughs> but they're also just so fun to paint and i had my my thesis advisor um was eliza griffiths and she was the best she she was really kind of helped me undo all of the formalist uh, indoctrination that was happening. And she said, she came into my studio and I was painting these figures in this landscape and it was zeroed in right on a bum. And she said, Corey, don't, don't, um, don't be afraid to make something really beautiful. She's like, like, if you're painting a bum, make it a really beautiful bum. It's like, we're so afraid to make things beautiful. It's like, we're not allowed to. And I think that was a big thing, like in Canada, that that the idea of beauty or something that could be categorized as cliche beauty um, yeah. was, uh, was automatically non-academic and frivolous and not worthy of inquiry. And I think that st- has stuck in my head. And that's something I tell my students all the time. Like, don't be afraid to go over the top and make it lush and beautiful and you know yeah rich beauty it's funny i mean it's always been i remember when i was in graduate school um david hickey's book um i think it's called yeah. like essays yeah. on beauty it was such a big thing like beauty was like a topic a hot topic because at that point it was like coming out of the 90s of all the you know it was the end of the 90s so it was coming out of all that sort of like installation like very political identity stuff and beauty seemed so taboo to like yeah. paint anything that was beautiful and then there were people who were championing it's such a compelling subject matter like it's always yeah. going to be there it is and it's yeah. always something that is alluring but it's always something that people think is absurd you know it was always it was always the thing that that was critiqued in my work in school and I you know I think a lot about how I grew up and you know I grew up in a like super Christian conservative um, community, and my mom was very very Christian, but my mom was also an aerobics instructor, and she was hot, and she would like get tanned and like wear short dresses to church, and like so. <laughs> And I could feel, like, I remember always feeling like, oh, mom, why don't you just dress like the other ladies? Like, uh, yeah. And I could kind of feel their <laughs> scorn. And I felt like that a little, a little bit in art school, where it's like this academic, like, um, kind of looking their nose, looking down their noses at my work mm-hmm. because there was something beautiful in it or because it was... And feeling that judgment. 
Right. Like, oh, this is too flashy. Like, Canada's pretty conservative when it comes to what it, you know, deems as, as, yeah. So I was always fighting against that and also fight, kind of pushing it, sometimes pushing it towards, you know, kitsch because I wanted to kind of overdo it and yeah. wanted to kind of push the comfortability with things having to appear to be like austere and serious and academic or, or ironic, you know? Right. And I think that the way that you're presenting these ideas and the way that you're painting them, there's nuance. And I think sometimes people get irritated with nuance because they feel like it's hard to define or it's hard mm-hmm. to pinpoint. Whereas like punk rock, and I think that's what you were saying, like some of those teachers or some people are like, you know, the message should be out front, matches the music. It's like the middle finger to the listener. It's like punk. You get it, you know. But it's so quickly digestible, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I always found it really compelling when you would have people like, I don't know, maybe a bad example, but someone like uh, Morrissey or like the Smiths where it's like, it's kind of upbeat sounding, but it's really depressing, like that balance of the two things. Or Elliot Smith who made beautiful music but it was so like just you know the pits and like there's a really nice dynamic there to the balance or the tension between something that lures you in that's beautiful but also repulses at the same time but i think sometimes that makes a viewer feel uncomfortable because they don't know where to stand but really that's kind of what gets us in trouble in the world a lot is when everyone makes this hardline stance on everything and there's no absolutely Absolutely. And, you know, right up to contemporary issues, it's like you—if you take a hardline stance one way or the other—it's you know people want you to do that because then you're just you can be categorized or something. But there's so much about our world, whether it's visual or what, whatever it is, that there's nuance. It's not black and white. It's gray, you know. And I Absolutely. think people don't want that. And that's really the—that's where art lives, is. Or else we would just write essays. <laughs> Absolutely. I, it's, it's about the questions and it's about the complexities of experience and all of the different, you know, the mix of ugly and beautiful and yes. repulsion and attraction and paintings that don't have those uh, conflicting elements in them, for me, are often... I'm not interested in them. Yeah. You know, if there's totally. no element, if something is so beautiful and there's not an element of, of a kind of ugliness or repulsion, I often am bored with it. Yeah. Um, I, I remember hearing Lisa Uscavich talk about a painting also and just saying, like, these paintings are not meant to tell you how to live. Like, they're, they're asking questions. And so I think a lot of students now think that their paintings should be saying something and should be saying something very direct. And so to try and, you know, talk with them about um, how about how about your painting asks questions or gets the viewer to ask questions or, um, you know, kind of diving more into experience. And I hope that... You know, for me, that's really important with these paintings, and I and I think I think that that's happening in them. I feel like it's happening in them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's, and, and the irony is that heart that stance of like you need to take a side or you need to be, or like younger artists, like you have to say something very specific, or mm-hmm. we can't define you or say that you're right or wrong or whatever. And that could be frustrating or whatever. I think 
when you see work, even if it's abstraction and it has that dynamic of beautiful and ugly and, you know, or that it has those elements, that's more real yeah. than like the most realist painting or something. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that taps into more of humanity and, and the reality of our world than, you know, anything that's just a quickly uh, able to be put in a box. And it's the thing that paint is really good at doing, like just as a material, that paint is so good at being so exquisite and so repulsive um, and kind of holding those two extremes and moving in between them that it's really like a very poetic material. Totally. And And in a way that it's like, in a way that other materials often don't have that same kind of range. So to kind of just relegate it to one or the other is so you know it's like just not using it to its potential yeah you're killing its its real value and it's yeah. like and that's the same thing with like love or even like sexuality or sex like mm-hmm. things like that they're so beautiful mm-hmm. but then so like repulsive at the same time mm-hmm. like I, that, yeah that's the duality yeah. of life right everything is uh, yeah I think that's the humor in sexuality is like such a such a funny thing to me and and in thinking about my paintings it's like there's so much absurdity involved in it it's funny you know it's almost like looking at it like a kid like being a kid and and learning about these things just thinking oh my god what you know um (laughs) and how you know and how that absurdity is is just so much a part of our experience that that can't be you know denied completely all right so here's my last question okay um in the studio is it yeah is it uh Uh, it it really varies so so for a while um it's mostly podcasts music i find um to be kind of too emotional sometimes Except it really depends on what I'm doing. So if I find a podcast that I can listen to really lightly and has a good smooth voice and I can kind of tune in and out, that's amazing. Um, it can't be like an audio book or anything because I can't follow a narrative. Right. It has to be Too something I can pop in and out of. Yeah. But when I start to hit my tired, like I start to kind of slump at three in the afternoon, um, I usually throw on some pop music <laughs> Nice. So that I am like dancing and moving around the studio. So I I used to be you know it used to be like really emotional, sad you know heavy wonderful beautiful music, um, and now it's like I'm on a <laughs> my my creative zone needs a steady diet of uh, SZA <laughs> and uh, you know a little bit of I'm not gonna lie a little bit of Taylor Swift lately, but just to just to like actually move my body around and dance and clean my brushes yeah. and get some energy back yeah i thought it would have been funny if you just exclusively listened to abba while you paint yeah <laughs> yeah no <laughs> but i it's funny like i i do i do really like if i find an album like the latest is album i will listen to that every day for oh, yeah. You'll dig like in. i'm a yeah and i can sing along i know all the words and i sing along and i my painting is like I have to be standing. I can't sit and paint. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes I put music on that I can kind of dance around. So yeah. I kind of dance when I'm moving back and forth between my painting and my palette. 
um, so I don't get stiff and like tight. So it'll be things on repeat. So that album, um, I mean, yeah, I'm looking for a new album to do that to, to just listen to death. Oh yeah. Um, if you could sort of name an artist, a musician, like a music that you think your paintings sound like or the era oh God. feel, is it anything you can think of? And I wasn't implying ABBA before. Do you have it? Yes. Oh God, no. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't know. I mean, they're they're my paintings are a mix of like, you know, some kitsch pop stuff. But I don't know. I don't know what that would be. Well, do you I have an idea? It, I do, but I don't want to. So Say, I would like to hear your idea. Well, the era of the iconography that you ins- led you down this road, thanks to the Salvation Army dumpster dive. Yes. What, what era was that, that imagery? Was it 70s? Yeah, 70s, 70s right? 80s. Yeah, 70s and tan early lines? 80s. Tan yeah. Lines was like a late 70s thing, right? Yeah, yeah 70s and then 80s, like mid to late 80s, porn starts getting really vulgar and kind of violent, like more kind of yeah. gross like i did oh, yeah did you did you watch boogie nights did you like that movie yes yeah it like, yes it was a great movie but like real great movie and like just oh like, yeah oh. yeah it just gets like ooh, just yeah gross. yeah yeah you can't and find like, the it's hard to find the like vulnerability in in uh, the brutal. late stuff yeah. Yeah, but when it turns to the '80s and how depressing that gets when they go to that guy's house, so depressing. House. So it feels like some of the work is is migrating through that era in a way. I right. know that's just as a source of inspiration. Yeah. No, no, but for I, sure. I mean, that was my that was my childhood. Like that's yeah. my the formation of my identity is that era. Right. You know. Yeah. So I guess I I think a little Fleetwood Mac maybe. Oh yeah. Okay. I and mean, I, I love Fleetwood Mac. Side note: Like I had traumatic Fleetwood Mac experiences oh. when I was growing oh, up. Oh, really? Like, yeah, like that band <laughs> brings up some very suspect... Oh, wow. Youth. I got into Fleetwood Mac later as an adult because when I was a young teenager, I was very into metal. Like, nice. I was a little Christian <laughs> little Christian kid who... But, like, metal, like, not... I mean, like, pop metal. Like, I loved Def Leppard. I loved Motley Crue. I Striper? loved... Striper Christian. was Christian, and so we were allowed. I was allowed to have Striper. Yeah, nice. there was always a debate in one church I went to whether you know it could be Christian or not. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I was into like heavy metal ballads, so I kind of like the heavy metal ballad. I feel like some of my paintings are like heavy me- heavy metal ballads. Nice. Like um, what was that? I'm trying to think of one of them that I. Every rose has its thorn. Guns Fly to the Angels by um, yes. what's that band? You know the ba- you know that song? I do. Um, yes. The other one I was thinking of was she was like Motoring. Remember that song? Maybe that Motoring. Was yeah. Night. But that yeah. epic kind of ballady. Yeah. You know. Ballady. Yeah. Where there's like a heavy a heavy kind of guitar, but a very sweet vocal. <laughs> yeah. Sunsets. Yeah. Feels Sunsets. Like, you know, Corvettes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something with light. Place. Yeah, something with the, the, where the light is really, yeah. Yeah. Like 
twilight well, that's, kind that's of like. It's good that we located a general. Yeah, soundtrack. good. <laughs> good. I'm all, I, I don't know why I love doing that. I love like imagining. I do it just naturally because I think I saw one of the one of the paintings and I was like, that's yeah. Fleetwood Mac just popped into my head. Oh yeah. Well, actually, a lot of the paintings I made um, for the show in LA was right after Sinead died, and I went through a phase and I just was like. I listened to her nonstop in the studio yeah. while I painted. I was such a huge fan when I was really young, mm-hmm. and I would sit with her records and sing along and like practice singing. And I was like, I shaved my head and I had boots. I had dock boots, and I wanted to be her. Um, and so her songs, like I, I did a lot of work listening to listening to her records. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah. So. Um what do you do you have anything coming up going on or where can I do I'm I'm I have a show right now uh called Quiet Time at Anat Ebge at her La Cienica location uh and that's on till November 18th and then in January uh dates I'm not sure yet I'll be showing in Dallas um it's a two-person show and it's at gallery 1226 and then I'm off to New York for three months, so um, I'll be doing a residency at NARS until April, and then that's nice. that's everything planned so far. Um, yeah. And then like Instagram, where people can keep up. With you. Instagram, yeah, I, I I'm very bad at updating my website, so I haven't done it. I haven't updated it in a while, but Instagram, I'm pretty active, so I I show a lot of in process paintings, yeah. which. Um, which has good and bad <laughs> things because you get well, comments like "Don't touch it," <laughs> yeah, it's and done. then when you ruin it, then when you ruin it, you're not only disappointing yourself, you're disappointing yeah. you know, art critic, art critics. Yeah. It's disheartening <laughs> when every once in a while I'll post a picture of like you know just gesso to canvas. I'm like ready to yeah. have at it, and someone's like, "It's done," and I'm like, "Done." Is really that the Shut bar up. we're setting here? <laughs> Just step away from the blank canvas. I know. Uh, I know. Well, big fan of the work. um, Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun.
Thank you. 